This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. The White House and the CDC today announced progress on increasing availability of tests, treatments, and vaccines for monkeypox. Monkeypox continues to spread in the U.S. The virus causes fever and painful, sometimes blistering rashes, and it seems to spread by both respiratory and skin-to-skin contact. The number of confirmed U.S. cases keeps rising with hotspots like New York City reporting a number of likely positives, too. But reported numbers may be still too low because people seeking tests have also reported delays, roadblocks, and trips to multiple providers just to get swabbed. Even the swabs get delayed to and from the lab. Vaccines are rolling out slowly. New York City's first batch of vaccine appointments was so popular that traffic crashed the website. The majority of cases so far are concentrated in the gay community of men who have sex with men, as well as people in the same sexual networks. We talked to Dr. Kaleto Makofani. He's a public health researcher based in New York City, and he said he knew multiple people who had tried repeatedly and failed to get tested for the virus, including one friend who had to see four different doctors in the process. His doctor did a CT scan before swabbing him for monkeypox. It's unbelievable that you would go to those lengths to avoid investigating this thing that is in the news and right in front of your face. And the person who's very knowledgeable about his body and about the science is pointing you to. And he says people are angry, too, to see an inefficient response unfolding even as people continue to find themselves exposed and symptomatic. People are experiencing immense pain and people are hearing stories about their friends experiencing immense pain. They are angry. I think the anger is a response that makes sense. Dr. Marco Fene is also the principal investigator of a new community-driven monkeypox research project called RespondMI, which he said was necessary because of the frustrating slowness and lack of information in the local public health response. The information systems that people depend on to figure out what's happening in this outbreak in the U.S. are very, very bad. The scale of testing was so low that we knew that those numbers can't help us to plan a response. We need to have information about the outbreak that doesn't depend on people engaging with the health system because we know that not everyone can engage with the health system. Dr. Tyler Tamir is the CEO of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. His clinic has set up a hotline specifically to field concerns about monkeypox. He says interest is so great that they're getting one to two calls per minute. Many folks who are calling into our hotline are frightened. They've never heard of monkeypox before, and they have just received an email from an event producer saying they were exposed to monkeypox. Then their search begins for vaccine. They're waiting on long phone tree queues. They're standing in these long lines, uncertain if it will truly result in a vaccine at the end of the day. This is scary stuff. (laughs) Regardless of whether it's fatal or not, things are scary when there are a lot of unknowns, when people don't know what they're supposed to do. Dr. Tamir's clinic has received fewer than 300 doses of vaccine. We would need something like 6,000 doses to effectively respond to our patient load at Magnet. And while we know that there are about 500 additional doses coming our way by the end of this week, we currently have a waiting list of eligible patients 
of over 2,500 individuals who want access to vaccine and are waiting, frantically trying to find one in the city. Now I want to bring on one of the veteran researchers of the monkeypox virus, Dr. Anne Ramoyne, an epidemiologist at the School of Public Health, UCLA. She's been researching this virus for more than 20 years. Welcome back to the show, Anne. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. How would you characterize the seriousness of this outbreak at this point, especially compared to other places this virus has showed up in the past? I think we're at a, at a very important moment in this epidemic. We have known for, for decades that monkeypox had the potential to spread in vulnerable populations, but I think it just you know, it managed to get itself into populations that have a lot of close contacts. It's spread very, very quickly. And now we really have to come to the point of deciding, you know, what are, what are we really willing to tolerate here for a pox virus spreading? Because the stakes are high. If this virus continues to spread, you know, it's very likely to become uh, entrenched in human populations, spreading from person to person uh, regularly. And, and we also have this very important piece to think about. We know that this virus is a, is a rodent pox. And if it gets into rodents, rodents will uh, transmit it very easily. It'll become very, very difficult to control. That doesn't sound like good news here. It's, it's not good news, but there is good news here, which is that we have vaccines that work, we have therapeutics that work, and we have control measures that work. And we need to be uh, hitting this uh, very hard right now. We need to be making sure that we have all of these pieces together, uh, working together and, and doing so quickly if we want to avoid having uh, monkeypox become a, a disease that we have to deal with regularly. One thing I'm hearing is that healthcare providers, and we just talked about this, are having trouble identifying patients because their symptoms are presenting so differently from textbooks. Why do you think and why do you think this is happening? That is absolutely a problem. This virus is, is presenting in a very different way than we've observed it in sub-Saharan Africa. And the textbooks all are reflective of clinical presentation that we've observed in the Democratic Republic of Congo, mostly. And the experience in Nigeria has not um, really made it into these textbooks in the same way. And I think that we're only beginning to truly appreciate that these focused lesions, um, this very different kind of clinical presentation uh, is is actually probably a lot more common than we were aware of, even in in Africa. You know, if you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it. And so now that we understand that that monkeypox can present in this manner, it's really important to even go back to places like sub-Saharan Africa to be able to truly understand has this been spreading in this way for a very long time, and we've just never observed it. We must have really good clinical presentation descriptions, case definitions available for, for clinicians. We need to have excellent uh, ed education out there without the kind of widespread testing that uh, will allow people to be able to understand it very quickly. 
it makes it very complicated to be able to diagnose it because this is a rash and rash illnesses are, are fairly common. Clinicians see rashes all the time. So I, I think it's, it's very, very important that this case definition and testing become widely accessible. Uh, and then we'll have a much better idea of how far this has spread. I think another thing that, that you brought up was this issue of, you know, well, what about the textbooks? Well, I've been one of the people that's written the textbooks. We write about what we know and the data that we have. Um, and so all of these chapters are going to have to be rewritten. It's going to be a completely different uh, chapter than, than what has been written in the past. And, and it's important to be able to update those things as quickly as possible with, with the new data. Uh, and, and because people, people use this as a reference. And if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't have any testing for it, it makes it very complicated to be able to find it. You know, we mentioned this connection you were talking about. You used the word smallpox and monkeypox. Do people who have already been vaccinated for smallpox at birth, do we have immunity to monkeypox? That's a very good question. And the answer is previous smallpox vaccination is likely to provide some protection, but the extent of, of the protection is hard to, uh, hard to assess. So uh, these are studies that need to be conducted right now. Right, right. I know more than 10 years ago, you were publishing a warning that monkeypox cases were rising as vaccination to smallpox subsided. How does it feel as someone who has researched this virus for, what, 20 years, to see it suddenly so concerning to people in the U.S. right now? It's, it's frustrating to see us repeating the same mistakes over and over again. You know, we know that it's important to have situational awareness. Uh, we've known that cases are increasing even in sub-Saharan Africa. So we've had some warning signs. You know, we've seen over the last several years importations happen somewhat regularly since 2018. And, and that should have been a warning sign as well. You know, it was, it was fairly inevitable that eventually it would start to, um, you'd see some person-to-person -person spread. In June, the World Health Organization said they wanted to rename this virus out of worries that the name monkeypox would further racism and other stigmas against patients. Does monkeypox need a different name? Well, I think it's really important to pay attention to how people uh, are are feeling. You know, the reservoir is not monkeys, it's rodents. So, that, so it is a misnomer in, in and of itself. So, you know, there's no benefit to keeping a name that creates stigma in any way, shape or form. Because if the name monkeypox makes people less likely to seek care, if there's any stigma, if there's any feeling that makes them feel shame in any way, shape, or form. And if it hurts anyone, change it. And there you have it. Thank you very much, Dr. Ramoyne, for taking time to be with us today. It's, it's my pleasure. Anne Ramoyne, epidemiologist at the UCLA School of Public Health. And now we go to a researcher we last talked to at the beginning of a very different viral outbreak, the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is an epidemiologist director of the New Pandemic Center at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Let me begin with you and your colleagues recently writing an op-ed essentially begging for a better testing protocol for monkeypox. Can you explain why testing has been so slow and what makes it not good? 
Yeah. So um, for many people, this may feel familiar, given what we went through with COVID-19. At the beginning stages of the pandemic, it was quite hard to get tested. Um, Back then, it was because we didn't yet have a test, and it took some time to develop a test and send those to laboratories. Um, At the early start of this monkeypox outbreak, that wasn't actually the problem. We actually had a test for the orthopox virus, which is the family to which the monkeypox virus belongs. And it was a test that was already at public health laboratories around the country. Um, But it was very hard for healthcare providers who were seeing patients to get specimens to those laboratories. It requires a different process than they usually use to send specimens to be tested. And it was just a cumbersome, um, hard to navigate process that was taking so long um, that it effectively limited who could be tested. And um, right now, given that we have Um, limited other tools to use. There are, of course, vaccines and and some therapeutics that we could use to to treat monkeypox. But right now, our main intervention is testing, diagnosing people who are infected so that they can know that they have the virus and so they can stay home for as long as they're contagious and not inadvertently spread it to others. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking to epidemiologist Jennifer Nuzzo about the ongoing outbreaks of the monkeypox virus. Let's roll the clock back to May. If you could rewrite the history of how we initially responded to this virus back then, what would have happened differently? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, maybe in the early days, the fact that we had a laboratory test already um, available and that we knew that we had some vaccines available, I think maybe ameliorated some of the early worry. Um, But very soon after, we started hearing that um, of the infections that we found, a number of them, we didn't know necessarily who they got it from. And when you have a transmission chain and you can't identify all the links in the transmission chain, that means it's going to be harder to control the virus. So that was worry number one. Worry number two was when I started hearing some of the top infectious disease doctors in the country complain that it was really hard to get their patients tested. And I thought if these folks who have a very high incidence of suspicion uh, know a lot about monkeypox and know about the importance of testing their patients, if they're having a hard time navigating the system, then other busy healthcare providers who possibly have far less knowledge and perhaps less understanding of the urgency to test their patients, um, we're likely not going to be able to work within that system too. That should have told us that we need more flexible testing and and more availability of testing um, through the regular processes that doctors and nurses use to other what you, you know, the way they usually diagnose their patients. That should have really happened within the first few weeks. Do we have a window, a narrow window that's going to be closing before a much bigger problem happens? Yeah, we have a narrow window. I mean, right now we have an outbreak that is um, grown quite um, quickly in, in the U.S. I and mean, part of that is because we're just finally turning on the light to look for cases. And whenever you do that, you find a lot more than you saw before. Um, but there is still concerns that this outbreak is is growing in size. Um, so that add some urgency. Um, but we also, I think, um, you know, have to worry that um, this could get out of hand if we don't act with with more urgency. And I think one of the things that worries a lot of people is that there's no biological reason why this virus will stay confined to any particular patient group. It's spread by very close contact. And so there is, of course, the worry that we could see it, the virus turn up in patient groups that may 
have more severe symptoms. It's a blessing that we haven't yet experienced deaths in this outbreak. But, you know, I think we should act to make sure that doesn't happen and and also act to um, meet the health needs of the patients that have been struggling um, with this virus. Um, I know people are feeling very frustrated that they're still not able to access testing, that they don't know how to get vaccinated, that there aren't enough vaccines available, that it's a black box in terms of who can get vaccinated and when. Um, you know, we need to fix this. Yeah, that's really interesting. We We still need to know a lot about the virus itself, don't we? Absolutely. And, you know, this is also a test of our larger preparedness system. And so far, I am seeing some real worrisome signs that, um, you know, uh, we have some gaps that we need to fill. Um, You know, if we had a more transmissible, more deadly virus, uh, I really worry about our abilities to control it. We saw the shortcomings of a lack of preparedness um, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. One would hope that we would use those hard lessons learned um, to bolster our preparedness, to get more ready for events like these that are going to become increasingly frequent in our future. Um, But unfortunately, I have not seen meaningful progress to suggest that we are taking a hard look at our public health and medical systems and making sure that they are ready to deal with uh, the constant threat of new infectious diseases. Jennifer, unfortunately, that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much for your work and for filling us in. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Nuzzo, epidemiologist and director of Brown University's New Pandemic Center. And thanks again to Tyler Tremere, Kaletsko Makofane, and Ramoin for their time in helping us unpack this public health crisis. 